their bodies were ruddy, their form like sapphire. Their forms are dark as soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled upon their bones. They are dried up like a tree. Better off those pierced by the sword than those pierced by hunger, than those who waste away, pierced by no produce from the field. The hands of merciful women boiled their children. They became food for them in the breaking of the daughter of my people. Yahweh accomplished his wrath. He poured out his burning anger. He kindled a fire in Zion, and it devoured her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor all the inhabitants of the world, that the enemy and the foe came into the gates of Jerusalem. It happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who poured out in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Blindly they wandered in the streets, defiled by blood. No one was able to touch their clothing. Away, unclean, they called to him. Away, away, do not touch. For they depart, indeed they wander. They said, They shall not dwell among the nations any longer. The face of Yahweh scattered them and no longer pays attention to them. The faces of their priests were not lifted up. The elders were not honored. chapter four kind of another downer chapter okay they, they just not a whole lot of, of light here throughout lamentations four um, if you remember from last week in lamentations three we got to kind of a happy part of lamentations three do you remember this yeah for one week we were kind of smiling a little bit there's a little bit of a bounce in our step and then we're back in lamentations four to kind of the destruction and the pain and the suffering the city has faced um Lamentations 4 is a big disappointment to most people, okay? If we're honest, most, especially Westerners, when we're reading through the book of Lamentations, if we were to read through the book of Lamentations, we're reading through it, we get to chapter 3, and again, there's this, like, hope. It's like, whew, finally, there's some sense of, like, goodness in the world. And in chapter 3, if you remember the strong man, he looks out on all the suffering, and he really rages against it. I mean, he's really upset about it. But finally, he says, but I remember that God is full of steadfast love, and so I have hope. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions will never fail. And we breathe, and we go, okay, things are good. And we want Lamentations to end in chapter 3, but it doesn't. 
It keeps going in chapter 4, how, like, the gold, our city has lost its luster. Chapter 3 is kind of this, like, letdown. It's this disappointment for us. Um, you'll remember the, the poems in Lamentations are structured in the form of an acrostic, okay? So A, B, C, D, each verse starts with a, a new line of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, so in chapters 1 and chapters 2, you've got A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And then in chapter 3, do you remember what happened? There was this triple acrostic. It kind of heightened the structure of the poem, drew your attention to chapter 3. Something big was happening there. A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. There's this kind of climax in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we go back to a regular acrostic. A, B, C, D. There's this kind of like sense of diminishing. You can even tell with the emotion, okay? If you were to go back and compare chapters 1 and chapters 2, and then particularly chapter 3 to chapter 4, you can sense there's a change in emotion, Okay, the narrator is describing some awful events. Okay, mothers boiling their children. I mean, some awful, awful events. But he seems to do it with very little passion. This is almost Lamentations four is almost like the morning after a tragedy, where you've already done all the venting you can do, and you've already let out all the tears that you can let out, and you just kind of wake up and observe the situation as it is. You've already got the pink slip. You've already called up all your friends and told them how much you hate that job and how horrible your boss is, right? Then you wake up and you you realize that you have no job. You've you've already got the diagnosis. You've already cried and cried and cried. And the next morning you wake up and you realize it's time to go to to chemo. It's the morning after. He wakes up and observes the suffering around him. Um, There's a sense kind of of, of diminishment. Uh, He looks at the famine the city has gone through. This seems to be kind of the the cause for his um, main concern in in chapter 4. There's a shortage of food. So when the Babylonians would have sieged Jerusalem, this would have been probably one of the main things that caused death, okay? Food and water would have stopped coming in, and people would have slowly started to starve to death. And and maybe horrible things like cannibalism would have started to occur. Um, We would be happy, I think, if Lamentations ended in chapter 3. We'd be okay with it. But Lamentations won't let you do that. Chapter 4 and then chapter 5, we'll see next week again, go straight back into the heart of pain. Go straight back into this lament, this complaint, voicing their confusion and their doubt and their anger and their hurt and their suffering. And I think there's a reason for this. And I think there's a reason why we get uncomfortable with it not ending at chapter 3 um, and continuing on in chapter 4. And the reason is, as we've observed by the series, you and I live in a culture of denial where we try to keep these kind of negative emotions as far away as we can. We don't acknowledge the fact that we're suffering, the fact that we're hurting, the fact that that bad things have happened to us, the fact that we might be in a negative place. And in fact, we've we've kind of made a religion out of it, right? I mean, we've kind of uh, created a Christian kind of subculture where we are all happy all the time, right? And if you don't have a smile on your face all the time, something's wrong with you, right? You're not a very good Christian, okay? You need to work a little bit harder on your faith. Why are you struggling here? Why do you have confusion? Why do you have anger? And we've kind of deleted out a whole bunch of the Bible in the process of doing that, right? So the the book of Psalms, the Psalter, um, Israel's worship book, uh, over a third of them are laments. They're complaints. They're they're, they're poems about suffering. And we we don't, we could go through the list of songs we have back there, Chris, but I don't think a third of them, right, are going to be these songs that just are really like full of hopelessness and despair and depression and those kind of things. We've deleted that kind of emotion out of our, our worship vocabulary, right? Um, we've, we've kind of, in our culture, we kind of make the assumption that tears, right, are expressing, uh, expressing mourning and, and grief and depression, that these are signs of weakness, 
I mean, think of the worst insult you can say to another man. Crybaby. <laughs> don't, be a, don't be a crybaby, right? Tears are, are for girls. Tears are for children. Tears are just for by yourself in your room, right? Don't, don't cry out in public. Tears are a sign of weakness here. Lamentations, the, the scripture is going to say, actually, I think there's a place uh, for our faith for you and I to express our mourning, to express our grief, and to be honest about uh, the kind of pain and suffering that we've gone through. Um, there's an old Chinese parable uh, that, that tells a story to try to communicate this idea that tears are powerful um, and tears are, are useful in our lives. And the, the story goes, there's this young couple uh, in China, and they got married. And then shortly after the marriage, so right when they got back um, from their honeymoon, they just had the, the wedding the celebration, they were separated. Um, so this was during the time of the building of the Great Wall of China. And if you, you don't know about the history behind that, what they would do is they actually had a lot of forced labor um, building the Great Wall. And so um, the military came in and they took the man and they separated the, the newly wedded couple and he went and worked on the wall. And like many men who went and worked on the wall, he died working on the wall. And like many men who worked on the wall, he died and was buried working under the wall. They had no kind of um, idea where his remains would be, what exactly happened to him. And so um, this, the, the country kind of did its best to kind of cover up what was happening to these people working on the wall. And they would send in reports and studies and, and send out these commissions, but no one ever got a good answer, right? Why did these people die and then where are they? I mean, you can't even tell us exactly what happened to them, where they are. And the story goes that finally, after all these kind of government-issued commissions that couldn't give a good answer, the woman, the new widow, shows up at the wall and cries. And she stands there and cries. And she doesn't say anything. She doesn't do anything. She just cries. And the whole Great Wall of China falls down. And the bones of her husband are revealed right in front of her in the ground. The idea is that what the whole nation couldn't do, she was able to do by mourning, by grieving. Tears are, are powerful. Laments are powerful. To be able to give voice to the complaints that we have, to be able to give voice to the, the anger and the hurt and the confusion that we sometimes experience as Christians are powerful and necessary if, again, we're going to be ready to celebrate the resurrection. If we're going to be able to, to really celebrate the life that God has come to give us, you and I are going to be able, um, need to be able to voice our laments. They're, they're powerful. Um, they're powerful. And so this morning I want to go through three ways um, from Limitations 4 that we can see laments as being powerful. Okay, why they're um, important for you and I uh, to be able to, to master, to be able to express. So the first reason is this. Limits are powerful ways of coping with grief. They're very powerful ways of coping with the different emotions that come into our lives when we experience a sense of loss or a sense of change. Okay, when a relationship fails, when a loved one dies, when a catastrophe happens to our family. You experience grief, and, and if you don't lament it, if you don't voice it, often what happens is you kind of repress those emotions, and they come out in very unhealthy ways. Um, you kind of always have this unfinished business that's holding you back from um, being exactly who God wants you to be in the moment. Uh, a few weeks ago, I told you the story of a guy named Nicholas who lost his son in a mountain climbing accident. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, he's a, I wrote a quote from him. He wrote a book on lamentations called Lament for My Son. And he, I wrote the, the quote I read to you was about him saying, don't explain my suffering. Right? He says, come sit with me in my suffering. Don't try to explain it away with a, like a theological cliche. When you do that, you're far away from me. You're of no help to me. He says, come, just sit with me. Come cry with me. Come suffer with me. He has another quote here I'm going to read to you. Again, he lost his son Eric on a mountain climbing incident. And he wrote a book about... Um, how Lamentations helped him cope with the grief that he faced losing his son. I believe his son was 19 years old. 
He says this, Elements of the gospel which I had always thought would console me did not. They did something else, something important, but not that. It did not console me to be reminded of the hope of resurrection. If I had forgotten that hope, then it would indeed have brought light into my pit to be reminded of it. But I did not think of death as a bottomless pit. I did not grieve as one who had no hope. Yet Eric is gone here and now. He's gone. Now I cannot talk to him. Now I cannot see him. Now I cannot hug him. Now I cannot hear of his plans for the future. That is my sorrow. A friend told me, remember, he's in good hands. I was deeply moved, but that reality doesn't put Eric back in my life right now. That's my grief. And for that kind of grief, what consolation can there be other than having him back? He says, as I was grieving the death of my son, really what hit me was the sense of loss, right? The sense that something has changed and I'll never have it back in my life. He says, as a Christian, I got it, right? I get that there's going to be a future. I I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe we'll all be resurrected, new heavens, new earth, and I'll experience that journey with my son. But that doesn't change the fact that what? Tomorrow morning I don't get to hug him. And that's what I'm hurting with right now. That's what I need to express. A real significant sense of loss. A real significant sense of change in my life that can't be explained away. That can't be dealt with by just putting a smile on my face. This is what you see, I think, in Lamentations. The poet uh, uses these colors to compare Israel's past and Israel's present experience. He says, they were like gold that's lost its luster. Luster in verse 7, the princes were whiter than snow, more dazzling than milk. Their bodies were more beautiful than coral. They were brighter than sapphire, but now, he says, they are blacker than soot. They're dark, it's dim, it's bleak. Life has gone from this colorful experience to this black and white toned, muted experience. He says the um, people who used to have delicacies in verse 5, they, they now are dying in the streets. The infants who used to be able to, to nurse with their mothers now are having their tongues stick to the top of their mouths as they lay on top of their mothers. He talks about how the famine, the siege, has infiltrated Jerusalem. It's affected the children, it's affected the adults, and it's even led to, to cannibalism. He says the, the mothers, they're boiling their own children alive. Theoretically, the, what's happening here is, is they're boiling children who have already died to feed children who are still alive. In any case, right, still a horrific situation. Maybe the ultimate sign that something's gone wrong in the world, right? When a maternal instinct, that kind of drive on part of a mother to protect and love her child has to be overcome to keep another child alive. Is there any, is there any sign more so than that that something dramatically wrong has gone on in the world has happened chaos has taken its, its place and, and power and the, the poet is lamenting this loss things aren't going to be the same anymore people have died it's happened and he, he's not explaining it away with the cute little phrase and he's not saying oh well Jesus is risen he's saying this is a significant experience of loss and change in my life and, and so I'm going to give voice to it you and I as Christians, I think we need to learn how to, to, to lament so that we can process our grief, so that we can process our mourning, um, so that we don't kind of bury it down and it become this kind of repressed emotion that, that makes its way out in unhealthy ways in our lives. It can even be good changes, I think, sometimes that we, we have to grieve. So, so maybe not even like the loss of a family member, just the change in, in location or a change in, in job situation. Just this, this kind of sense that this will never be the same anymore. 
it's a needed change, but still there's some kind of dramatic shifting happening in my life, and I need to, to give voice to the pain I'm feeling about it. Um, I heard a story recently about a, a little girl who, she's a grown woman now. When she was a little girl, her father died, and they were on the way to the funeral, and her mother told her that she's not allowed to cry at the funeral because she's a Christian. And she was talking about how that kind of scarred her for a whole long uh, period in her life. And I'm thinking, we're going through limitations, right? I mean, that's not a healthy way to deal with grief. Grief. You, you have in the scriptures, I think, healthy ways to deal with grief. To be honest about your pain. To cry. Let those tears be powerful uh, in your life. Um, again, we've, we've kind of created a culture where tears, mourning, these expressions of, of pain and confusion and anger, doubt, are, are looked down upon. Particularly even in, in Christian circles. But you have, I think, scriptures here giving us room to be honest about those feelings and to say, this is, this is, this is what I'm going through right now. Um, when I was first out of college, so the first summer uh, after my first year of college, I went and worked at a summer camp uh, up near Van, Texas, Sky Ranch. And so if you've been around for a while, I've told you stories about Sky Ranch. I feel like it's been a while since I've told you a story. Um, it was a really formative time in my life, all right? Uh, and so I really learned a whole lot about myself and about... Um, kind of the gifts God had given me and, and what it means to, to work with other people and to serve with other people and take care of other people, um, those kind of things. This past week I was telling uh, some stories to my students at school about Sky Ranch, so I was kind of thinking through all the things that happened. And I remembered a story I'd forgotten about the very last week of camp. So um, about three months after this real formative, again, experience in my life, right, where I really bonded with these guys I was working with and really learned a whole lot and grown in my relationship with the Lord. Um, it was two weeks until the summer was over. But the last week... Everything got flipped upside down for like a, a topsy-turvy week. So this was really the last week of summer, right? This was the last week with this group of guys in our cabin doing what we've been doing all summer. And I can remember that whole week being in just the foulest mood that I'd ever been in, okay? I was angry. I was grumpy. I was upset with everybody all week. It was just, what is going on with you? What's wrong? What's wrong? Just shut up. Leave me alone. I don't, I don't know, but I'm not happy, okay? Just leave me alone. I don't know. Why are you ruining our last week of camp, Mike? I don't know, but get away from me. Before I kick you in the throat, okay? This is not, <laughs> not doing good right now, okay? And I can remember on the last night of that week, we were in worship, and out of nowhere, okay, like water faucets just turned on, and I just start sobbing. I mean, I just break down, and I'm crying, and I'm crying, and I'm crying. And here's what you need to know about me. I'm kind of a crier, okay? And so I've, <laughs> society has taught me to bury that deep down, right? To keep that way down within me. I want to be a man. I am a man, not much of a man, okay? But I, I'm trying not to cry. I have a tattoo. I have a little facial hair. I used to own a snake, all right? That's about my three <laughs> levels of masculinity here, okay? And, and I'm sobbing, and I kid you not, at a certain point, one of my buddies comes over and, like, offers me a hug, and that turns into me, like, crying on his shoulder, and I'm seeing myself. Have you ever been in that moment, right? And I'm like, I want to slap him, right? Stop crying on that dude's shoulder. And all this pain and hurt kind of just fell out. And I kind of realized why I'd have been in a foul mood all week, right? It was because I had this sense that something was ending this week. And that no matter what happened, I would never get this summer back. I'd never get this time back. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a, no one died. It wasn't a bad change. But there's this significant feeling of loss. And once I was able to, to lament that, to cry a little bit on another guy's shoulder... <laughs> able to process those emotions a little bit healthier, okay? Laments are a powerful way uh, for you and I to, to grieve, to express our, our grief and to cope with those feelings that we have. Um, the second thing I want you to, to think about this morning um, in terms of how laments are powerful in our lives, uh, laments are powerful acts of protest 
or powerful ways that we can resist injustice in the world around us or injustice that happens to us. Look in verse 12 of Lamentations 4, or verse 13, I'm sorry. Lamentations 4, verse 13. The narrator is going to explain why this has happened to Jerusalem. He says this, This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. He says it was religious and governmental failure at the top that led to this invasion, led to this famine, that led to all this suffering, okay? So the priests were in control of the temple, the the offering, um, the sacrifice, that whole system of the Jewish religion, okay? And so what happened is the people would come to the temple and give them animals and money as offerings, and the priests were supposed to divvy them up appropriately. They got a little bit for themselves, okay, to be able to live on. They gave, they distributed it to the poor, among the people, they gave some of it to the Lord as an offering. But what happens over time, right, is people get greedy and greedy and greedy, and the priests start taking a little bit more, and they start taking kind of some power plays and start influencing their control over politics in certain situations. And you see the prophets um, being upset about this. If you read through Micah or, or Amos, or if you read through even Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentations, his book, he, he calls out these people, right? He's saying, y'all are supposed to be God's mouthpieces, but instead you've become these greedy, horrible people. Y'all need to repent. Y'all need to change what's going on in, in the world around us. <coughs> One of the reasons Jeremiah is called a weeping prophet, not only because he wrote Lamentations, um, but in his book, and Jeremiah, right, he's constantly crying. Because he's seeing how wrong things have gone in the world around him. And no one listens to Jeremiah. If you read through the book of Jeremiah, I mean, it's kind of a depressing prophet, okay? He, uh, he has this message, you need to repent or God's going to come and destroy everything, which, which he did. They did not repent. And Jeremiah, no one listens to him. I mean, no one ever listens to him except for his scroll, who I always thought, don't even mention that, man. Like, that's, that's worse, right, than no one listening to you. Well, the one person who listened to me was the person I paid, okay, who wrote down my sermons. No one listened to him. He got beat up constantly. Every time he opened his mouth, he got put in a ditch. And here he's saying the prophets who should have been lamenting what was going on. What's the role of a prophet to say that's wrong? This needs to change. So they were were quiet. And the few of us who did stand up, our blood was shed. We were silenced. We were taken away. Lamenting or voicing complaints is often a very strong and powerful way for you and I to bring attention to injustice. Both that's happened to us and that's happening in the world around us. Um, And oftentimes when we fail to lament injustice, what happens is Christians, we, we serve uh, kind of a role of underwriting the status quo in the world. When we ignore injustice around us, when we don't feel the pain of injustice around us, we end up kind of underwriting things as they are. Um, and one of the things lament creates and, and provides for us is this opportunity to say, this is wrong. Look at what the priests have been doing. That's wrong. Look at what the mothers are doing to their children. That's wrong. And something needs to be done about it. Maybe you grew up in, in, in kind of this dysfunctional family. That's a joke. We're all in dysfunctional families, okay? Um, <laughs> I know it's not just my family, all right? You've got the crazy... Okay, never mind. Uh, dysfunctional family, right? Where maybe dad's an alcoholic, or, or the marriage is failing, or, or all these different kinds of things are happening, or there's this history of abuse or addiction or whatever, and the family policy about it is what? Shut up. No one talks about it. Bury it down. Do not talk about it. And then there's that one annoying person who's like, we're going to talk about this. This is wrong. This is wrong and it needs to change. There's power there. And that one person willing to lament the situation, willing to be honest about the, the wrongdoing that's happening there. Now, I have, a, I think, just the most perfect example of 
a uh, modern lament of protest. Okay, and so I have it here for you. This is so absurd and awesome at the same time. Um, I don't know. Has anyone ever heard of the infamous letter about seat E29? Okay, this is actually a Houston story. All right. So out of Houston, Hobby Airport, there's a gentleman a few years ago who's flying on Continental Airlines. I don't know if you're familiar with this majestic airline. He was flying on Continental Airlines, and he did not have the experience he was hoping to have um, with his seat location and different things that were happening to him as he was flying. And so he decided to use the entire flight to write a letter expressing his outrage to Continental Airlines. It's been preserved and passed around. Um, it's been called the best complaint letter that's ever been written. Okay, so I want to read to you this morning. I think this is a, a perfect example here of what a, a complaint, um, a protest might look like. So it begins like this. Dear Continental Airlines, I am disgusted as I write this. I write this note to tell you about the miserable experience I'm having sitting in seat uh, 29E on one of your aircrafts. As you might know, the seat is situated directly across from the laboratory, so close that I can reach out with my left arm and touch the door. All my senses are being tortured simultaneously. <laughs> it's difficult to say what the worst part about it is. Is it the stench of the sanitation fluid that's blown all over my body every 60 seconds when the door opens? Is it the whoosh of the constant flushing? Or is it the passenger's rear ends that seem to fit into my personal space like a pornographic jigsaw puzzle? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Just preaching the Bible, all right? Here we go. He goes on, he says, I've constructed a stink shield by shoving one end of a blanket into the overhead compartment while effective in blocking at least some of the smell and offering a small bit of privacy, their rear end on my body factor has increased. <laughs> As without my evil glare, passengers feel free to lean up against what they think is some kind of blanketed wall. <laughs> the next rear end that touches my shoulder will be the last. <laughs> I'm picturing a boardroom full of executives giving props to the young, promising engineer that figured out how to squeeze one more row of seats onto this plane by putting them next to the bathroom. I would like to flush his head. <laughs> and the toilet that I can, and I'm sitting close enough to, to touch and taste from my seat. He says, putting a seat here was a very bad idea. I just heard a man grunt in there. This stinks. <laughs> in the letter, originally too, there are drawings, illustrations, okay? The caption here says, depiction of man's butt in my face. Just sitting here. Worse yet, he says, is I've paid over $400 for the honor of sitting in a seat. Does your company give refunds? I'd like to go back where I came from and start over. See, 29E could only be worse if it was located inside of the bathroom. I wonder certain things. I wonder if my clothing will retain the sanitizing odor. What about my hair? I feel like I'm bathing in a toilet bowl of blue liquid. And there's no little man in a boat to save me. I'm filled with a deep hatred for your plane designer and a general dis-ease that will last for hours. We're finally descending, and soon I'll be able to tear down the stink shield. But the scars will remain. <laughs> I suggest that you initiate immediate removal of the seat from all of your crafts. Remove it. Leave the smoldering brown hole empty. A good place for non-absorbing luggage. 
anything but humans sign his name. He writes this complaint letter to uh, Continental. They actually publish it, okay? They think this is hilarious. And they put this out everywhere, get some, I think, good publicity about this. And it's almost turned into this kind of like niche uh, little thing where people try to top this with like complaint letters. You can Google this. There are all kinds of like these great complaint letters out there. But they're so entertaining for us. Um, and they're so, I mean, the ones that get it well, right? That lets you feel like how miserable it is. Maybe you have a friend like this who's really good at venting. Or who's really good at complaining about certain people or certain situations, and they capture the details so perfectly, right? And it's so entertaining and so kind of cathartic for you. You bring someone into your situation and you say, this is how bad it is. This is how bad it is. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be done. The airliner is a, kind of a silly example, right? But, but I think larger in the, in the larger world, when, when Christians ignore suffering around us, or when we ignore suffering that's happening to us, what that does is it underwrites it. It allows us to, to keep on keeping on and the world to keep on going the way the world has kept on going. Um, just a, like update on the world for everybody. Things are not that great. Right? I mean, if we're being honest, probably more of our prayers should be like lamentations than like some happy song. Because people are dying. And countries are at war. And families are falling apart. And we find pain on the inside of our own hearts and sometimes we need to stand up and say this is not right and I need to do something about it and God you sure need to do something about it um, sometimes I think we uh, what, what's happened when we have made church into just praises okay? where we've lost the form of lament as a form of worship um, is we have underwritten the idea that everything is exactly the way God wants it to be okay so all these horrible things are happening. Praise the Lord. All this, this horrible stuff's happening in our city. Praise the Lord. His plans are so perfect. All this is happening in my life. I'll still be happy and I'll still praise the Lord. <coughs> Instead of standing up and saying, actually, I'm kind of upset about this. Particularly because I know who you are. And I know who you're supposed to be. I know your character. And so I'm, I'm wondering why you would let this happen, right? If you were just a, God, okay? then, yeah, I can understand how you'd let all this happen. But if you're a God full of steadfast love, then I need to call you out and say, how could you watch this happen? Why aren't you defending me? Why aren't you coming to my aid in the situation? There's this sense in, when, in, 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 in that complaining to God about injustice is actually a compliment to his character. Does that make sense? God doesn't want, I think we said this the week one, God doesn't want yes men. He doesn't want people to just kind of sit there and go, yep, you're imperfect, yep, yep, yep. In the scriptures, there are all these people who go to God and they say, this is not right. Change it. Fix it. Look at us. Do something. The Israelites are in slavery and then all of a sudden God hears their cries and he delivers them. They call out. They make a scene. Laments are this powerful way that you you and I can can protest injustice in the world around us, can resist. as kingdom people, okay, people to follow, call to follow Jesus and, and building and experiencing the kingdom of God, um, we're not called to live a lifestyle of resignation. It just says, well, things are how they are, and that's how it will always be. We're called to live a lifestyle of revolt that says, where we see things wrong, we're going to fix it. And we're going to bring heaven to earth. Let's Jesus pray the Lord's Prayer. Being able to voice our suffering and our complaints act as a, a way that we can protest, a way that we can resist injustice. And then lastly, number three, laments are a powerful way that we grieve. They're a powerful way that we can protest. They're also a powerful pathway to hope. 
okay? A lament is the cry of a heart that's broken but beating. Does that make sense? It's the cry of a heart that's still alive and still looking forward to the future. That still wants something to happen because they're still invested in the way that things are. It's the cry of someone who's alert and awake and who wants things to change. It's the cry of someone who has enough faith to voice their complaints to God. That's enough faith that God will care about it and hear it and receive it and act on it. A limit is this way that kind of space is created inside of us for hope. You can almost think of like tears flushing out certain things inside of us so there's more space for us to, to be hopeful about the future, for us to be hopeful about God, what he might do in our lives, what he might do through our lives. You see this, even in Lamentations 4, this depressing poem, it ends on this note of hope. The king's been captured in verse 20. Kind of the, the, as bad as it can get, our king's been captured. We thought he would protect us among all the nations. And then he says, but, but be glad because your punishment is over. Your exile will end. God will forgive your sins. There's almost a sense that like we've hit rock bottom. Like it can't get worse than this. And now what we have is what's next? What's God going to do next? This hope is created. There's space created inside of them. Um, this is why I think it's so cathartic. It's hard to put a finger on it. Why is it so cathartic, right, to, to lament with others, to complain with others? Have you ever just needed a vent to somebody? I mean, don't, right, you call someone up, you say, don't record this conversation. As soon as I hang up with the phone, I want you to forget all these words that I'm saying. I don't know these words. But I need you to listen to me for three minutes. And you just go off. And in the end, it's like, you've like taken a shower, right? I mean, it's like, you just feel so much better. There's something about vocalizing it that's creating, it's pushing out, it's creating space for you to experience something new, for a fresh word to be spoken, for you to experience hope. Um, and, and Hunger Games, if you're familiar with the books or the, the series of movies, there are three books. I think the second movie recently came out. There's this line in the first book, in the first movie, that, that's always been so powerful to me. Uh, if you're not familiar with the, the premise of Hunger Games, there's a capital city, okay, and they've kind of subjugated the whole kingdom in slavery and poverty and kind of keep everyone beating them down. And one of the ways they keep their reign in force is by every year taking kids from every city and having them fight to the death in a hunger game, okay? And then one kid survives, the last man standing, and he becomes famous, she becomes famous um, for the rest of their lives. Um, and so that's kind of the, the basic plot of the book. And then obviously some kids come to the hunger games and things don't work out the way that they want them to work out. Spoiler alert, okay? Um, but in the first movie, the, uh, the <coughs> president of the Capitol is talking to the guy in charge of the hunger games. And he asks him this question. He says, do you know why we let one child live? We could just kill all of them, right? I mean, that would teach people a lesson. Let's gather up your kids, kill them in front of you, don't mess with us. Have a nice year, right? He says, you know why we keep one of them alive? And the game maker's like, no, no, why, why would you keep one alive? And he goes, because hope is way more powerful than fear is. If they have a little bit of hope that maybe they'll be the ones who'll survive, they won't rebel against us. They'll think, well, maybe everyone else will experience this badness, right? We'll, we'll die, but I'll be that last one standing. He says, a little bit of hope is way more powerful than fear, but a lot of hope is dangerous. He says, it will blow the whole thing up. That's actually what happens in the series, right? Um, it doesn't work out the way they want it to work out in front of everybody, and all of a sudden, it's like a chamber of, of gas ignited, right? And there's this revolution. And people are filled with this hope that leads them into this powerful, dramatic change. And this is what happens when we, we lament. We're creating the space for hope. And then when God's hope comes in, it can ignite. It can click. And something can, can erupt inside of us. 
Right? As we're heading toward Easter Sunday, as we're headed toward celebrating the resurrection, the hope that comes to the resurrection, Lent is all about looking in our hearts, looking in our minds, looking in our souls, creating some space, and creating some space, and pushing things out a little bit, so that on Easter Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection, it ignites, and we're able to go forward. We're able to live life. We're able to be the people Jesus called us to be. And we don't have unfinished grief on the past holding us back. And we don't have um, injustice around us that we're ignoring. Instead, we're able to be and do all the things that God has called us to be and to do. Laments help us grieve. They help us protest injustice. They help us create space for hope. Help us create space for us to experience the life God has come to provide for us. So we'll end this morning, um, and I'll just ask you a couple questions, okay? Over the past year, maybe longer than the past year, are there any things that you have not properly grieved? Are there any losses you've experienced in your life, any changes you've experienced that you haven't properly lamented that perhaps would keep you from being and doing all the things that, that Christ has called you to be and do today? That would perhaps keep you from experiencing all the hope that perhaps you experience on Easter Sunday? Are there any injustices around you Maybe things that have happened to you or are happening around you that you haven't properly lamented, that you haven't properly voiced, complained about, that perhaps might keep you from being and doing all the things that Christ has called you to be and to do. The Lamentations is trying to teach us these, these aren't things for Christians to shy away from. You don't have to be scared. Right? We're not going to kick you out if you're confused about something, if you're angry about something, you have doubts about something. Those need to be brought to the cross and expressed, vocalized, so that you can grow and you can go and you can experience all the love that Christ has for you. We're headed towards Resurrection Resurrection Sunday, Easter, just in a couple weeks. But again, before we get there, before Christ resurrects, he goes to the cross. Before we get there, we want to we do some self-examination. We want to push out anything we need to push out. We need to create some room so that we might be able to worship and might be able to be faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, the time that you have given us this morning. I pray that you would bless us as we follow you. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would reveal to us any places perhaps where we need to do some lamenting, Father. I pray that you would encourage us if, if perhaps we've all our lives thought this is not the kind of right attitude for us to have. We've got to ignore these kind of emotions. I pray that you would um, help us to be able to to walk through these things healthily, Father. I pray that um, you would prepare us as a church body and as individuals for uh, the resurrection, uh, to celebrate your son's death on Good Friday, his resurrection from the, the grave on Sunday, Father, that, that we might be ignited, that, that the space might be just right, Father, for some kind of explosion to take place in us, that we might know you and love you and work for you in some powerful new way um, this year as we worship. Father, I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for your spirit and for the salvation you've given us. And it's in your son's perfect name that all God's people prayed. Amen.